I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, we'll be looking uh, this morning at chapter 5, verses 8 through 14. And believe it or not, uh, finishing up uh, one week ahead of schedule. One week ahead of schedule, if you can imagine that. I hope you all have been encouraged, uh, as I've mentioned in probably the not-too-distant weeks past, as we've walked through uh, thoroughly, I trust, and, and carefully through this book of, of God's Word and have heard not, not just snippets of Scripture here and there, but really heard the, the full scope of this particular book of 1 Peter, that, uh, that, that we've really been able to do what, what really sheep should do, hear the voice of our Lord and God, the, the shepherd, and come and hear that Word and be ministered to in a deep uh, way to see our lives uh, touched by it, to see ourselves strengthened as we come here and gather for weekly worship and, and hear God's Word, to have a deeper understanding of what the Lord is telling us in, in this particular book and what He's telling us about salvation. So all that to say, uh, while we wouldn't want to pat ourselves on, on the back for, for simply hearing and listening God's Word, I, I hope you're encouraged in a good way, uh, as you have uh, many been able to make the commitment to be here weekly and hear from First Peter at the work that God's done in our hearts and lives, through His Word, and really can only do uh, through the work of His Word. So take that encouragement, and also take encouragement even from the passage that we look at today. The last few uh, verses of which, 12 through 14, remind us of some things, that, that we stand in the grace of God, that He gives us peace, that this Word comes through the Apostle Peter, he affirms for us, and it's, it's not from any other source, and it's from the Lord in that way. And we need to know these things, as we're going to see in a minute, so that we can be undergirded, supported, strengthened as we face this world and the evil one who is at work in it. So I invite you to stand with me and listen to God's Word. Uh, we stand in honor and recognition of the power, the truth of it. I'll read aloud as you all read along uh, silently. First Peter, again, all the way at the back of your Bible, right before the book of Revelation, really. Uh, first, uh, first Peter chapter 5, verse 8 through 12. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting, declaring to you that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, he's talking about uh, Rome there, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. You may be seated, and as you do, uh, let me pray for us again. O oh, gracious Father, we 
We ask that as we come to the conclusion of this fall series through this book of 1 Peter, that you would continue to do what you have been doing, we trust, all this fall. Allowing us to see and delight further in you and be strengthened in our walk with you through hearing of your word. We ask that you would equip us, enable us to hear and receive it and apply it. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a new Geico commercial that's on uh, TV. It's part of their How Happy Are Our Customers, Happier Than a So-and-So series. And maybe you've seen it. It features two antelope out on the African plains. It's dark at night. And they have on a set of night vision goggles. You've seen it, I can tell, from the smiles I'm getting back from you all. As they look through those goggles, they see their most dangerous foe, this prowling lion moving through the prairie grass. But instead of being attacked unawares by this deadly creature, having their lives taken, they're allowed to watch him every step of the way, and even chide him a little bit about taking on a vegan lifestyle since he can no longer get to them, since they've been able to be watchful, be able to be ready to resist him. In Geico fashion, the commercial ends, well, you know, how happy are our customers? Happier than a pair of antelopes with a night vision goggles. As a believer... If we want to be happy in Christ, and we're invited to be happy, if we want to have peace, that the very last verse of this book calls us to peace for us to have in Christ, if we want to be experiencing a vibrant and growing relationship with Christ, a deeper passion for loving Him and loving others, we're reminded that we too need to have a sort of set of night vision goggles on. To be able to watch, to be able to see, to be able to know that there's one out there who seeks to bring down our relationship with Christ, to tear us away from that, to pull us away from walking with Him. And we're reminded in these verses as well that we're utterly helpless, even if we're able to see that evil one, to resist Him without the work of Jesus Christ and His power in our lives. Now, admittedly, this for the first Sunday of Advent is not going to be maybe as warm and fuzzy a message as we like to hear ramping up into Christmas time. We'll get to a few more of those in the weeks uh, to follow here. But we want to take a serious look at what this passage says to us. The main idea of which, and you can find in the back of your worship guide, uh, the section to follow along with the sermon notes, and, and even if that isn't your normal habit or preference, I'd encourage you to do it today because I'm going to quote from several uh, passages in the Screw Tape Letters, a book by C.S. Lewis, and I think you'll have an easier time following along if you take a moment to to turn to that part of your worship guide. Uh, The main idea that the Lord has for us is this. Because the God of all grace undergirds us by faith, we can see to resist the devouring devil. 
I like what C.S. Lewis says. It's actually not in uh, the screw tape letters, not on your worship guide there. We'll get to some of those other quotes in a minute. But he says this uh, elsewhere. He says, one of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was that it talks so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who was held to be the power behind death, disease, and sin. The difference is that Christianity thinks this dark power was created by God and was good when he was created and then went wrong. Christianity agrees that the universe is absolutely at war. But it doesn't think that this is a war between two independent powers. It's a civil war. It's a rebellion. And we are living in the part of the universe occupied by the rebel. And then listen to this. I know someone will ask me, Lewis says, do you really mean at this time of day to reintroduce our old friend the devil with his hooves and horns and all? Well, Lewis says, what time of day has to do with it, I don't know. And I'm not particular about the horns and hooves. But in other respects, my answer is yes, I do. I do not claim to know anything he says about his personal appearance. If anybody really wants to know better, I would say to that person, don't worry. If you really want to, you will know better. Whether you will like it is a whole other question. As we sit here and think about Peter's words about an evil one prowling, the devil we know him as, or Satan, and we're gathered here today, there may be uh, some of us who have a, a, an over-interest in the things of the evil one. That's possible. I'd imagine probably a larger chunk of us are in the position that I tend to be in of knowing what the Bible says, that this being exists, and yet not really in my day-to-day life being aware of him, being conscious, being watchful, and being ready to resist him. And of course, if we're not watchful of his schemes and his working, if we don't have night vision goggles on, then we're not going to be prepared to do what the passage says and really resist him, resist his work in our lives. The passage goes on and tells us that uh, we suffer, and when we suffer, if we don't realize there's this ultimate hope of glory we're headed to, that's going to get us off track as well. So even if we're watchful, resistant, and looking to glory, we can start to try to walk in the Christian life and even resist the evil one in our own strength. So we've got a lot of areas here we need to work on. We need to recognize that he's out there. We need to recognize the call to resist. We need to recognize we're not alone in this. And then we also need to rely on the Lord's strength at every point. What, a better, what better thing then for Peter to... Tell us in what he says in verses 10 and 11. Look at those verses with me. He says, after you have suffered a little while, he's talking about our lives and the difficulty and challenges we face. So after you've gone through your life, he's saying, the God of all grace, he's a gracious God. He shows us unmerited favor we don't deserve. Who has called you, he hasn't left us where we are. He's elected us. He's chosen us. He's brought us into his family. To what? 
to eternal glory in Christ will do what? Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. I just put that all together and said undergird us. He supports and strengthens us. And how do we know He can accomplish this? How can we be sure He can bless us in this way? Verse 11. He's got dominion. He has power forever and ever. He's able to support us. He's able to sustain us. And we need this because of what He talks about earlier in the passage. That there's this evil one that's lurking, that's working, that's seeking to take us away from our vibrant relationship with the Lord. And if we don't have careful watchfulness, stalwart resistance to His working, and a growing faith in the glory of God, He will devour us, Peter says. First thing we want to look at then is, what does this passage say about watchfulness? It says in verse 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Be watchful. We've all experienced situations where uh, we are not watchful for dangerous things and the consequences. Think about Pearl Harbor, 1941. Totally unaware until planes begin flying overhead and bombing that there's an attack coming. Think about closer in our own time here for more of us. 2001, 9-11. Remember watching those scenes on TV and thinking, this surely can't be happening. And then how are we not guarded against this? How did we miss this? We know what it is to fail to be watchful. And we think about it in a spiritual sense. We need to realize that Satan doesn't care. The evil one doesn't matter to him how he gets in. If, if we want to throw the front door to our house open on a bitter cold day, that cold air will blow right on in through that front door. You know? And, of course, I find my front door left open by certain little ones quite often, wide open in that cold air coming in. He'll come in on that way if, if, if we desire for him to, if we let him to. But he's also just as happy to seep in through little cracks in the ceiling and little parts of the window or the light switch you know, covers or wherever he can come in It doesn't matter to him. So we're to watch and pray. We're to watch and pray because of who he is. So let's talk for a moment. Who is the devil? Well, the scriptures say that he's a a fallen one that uh, originally was an angel, has dropped down and now commands uh, a cadre of demons as well. He's in active rebellion against God. And we should know a little bit about how he works too. We'll say some more about that in a minute. It's fascinating to me if you look at Matthew 4. We don't have time to turn there this morning, but Jesus tempting, or the Satan tempting Jesus. You remember how he does that? What does he use to tempt Jesus? He's going toe to toe with the Lord of the universe, our Savior Jesus, and he has the audacity to use the Word of God to tempt Jesus. If he's got that kind of audacity, and can manipulate things that way to use the Bible even to lead, to try to lead Jesus astray, uh, how much more do we need to be discerning about who he is and about the way he comes into our lives? If he can even use the Bible itself as a tactic for temptation. We know that he's the one who sows the weeds in the parables that we read about throughout the scriptures. 
We know from Matthew 25, verse 41, that he nevertheless has already been given a punishment, this eternal fire to be separated from God. It's interesting then to think about some of the areas of our life where we're prone to to not be so watchful. And one of those is when we start to find ourselves and we all get there at various phases. Maybe it lasts for a while. Maybe it lasts a few weeks. Maybe it lasts a year where we find ourselves sliding into a spiritual slump. The things of Christ and the things of His church and the things of fellowship with Him start to just fade away a bit. To not be so exciting. To not be such a central part of our lives. And I do like what C.S. Lewis says in his book, uh, The Screwtape Letters. If you're not familiar with that book, I think I have a copy uh, up here. It's a great little book. It sounds crazy to read a book about the devil and have it be encouraging, but it actually really is. It really strengthen uh, your faith, and it's short little chapters that you can, can read uh, in, a, in a short setting. It's, it's, this is the theme. Uh, uh, an older, more senior, more established demon is trying to train up a younger one in the ways of demon and tempting practices. That's the idea here. And so that older demon is writing these letters, and this is in your worship guide if you want to read along, talking about the phases we can get in, those spiritual slumps, and to be watchful for them. This older tempter says, another possibility is that of direct attack on his faith. When you've caused him to assume that the trough, that slump, is permanent, can you not persuade him that this religious phase is just going to die away like all his previous phases? Of course, there's no conceivable way of getting by reason from the proposition, if I'm losing interest in this, to the proposition, this is false. But as I said before, it's jargon, not reason you must rely on. The mere word phase will likely do the trick. I assume that the creature has been through several of them before. They all have. And that he always feels superior and patronizing to the ones he's emerged from. Not because he's really criticized them, but because they're simply part of the past. You keep him well fed on hazy ideas of progress and development and the historical point of view, I trust, and give him lots of modern biographies to read. The people in them are always emerging from phases aren't they? Watchful. Watchful we need to be. For the subtle workings of the evil one that would have a spiritual slump instead of turned into an opportunity to redirect ourselves, to pray, to ask God to come and meet us and reinvigorate us for Him to be an opportunity to dismiss the whole thing, toss out the whole ball of wax. That leads us to the second thing that we're reminded of in this passage, and that's in verse 8 as well. I'm sorry, verse 9. It says, resist him. Resist him. Again, it won't do us any good, really, to see what he's doing and know that he's there unless we're actually in a posture of resisting his work. And I want to speak uh, real directly, if I can, about this. And, And again, I apologize as we're coming into Christmas season for just how... Uh, how serious this is, but I want us to to deal with this last part of 1 Peter and and deal with it as he presents it to us. You remember that time after Jesus has presented the Lord's Supper to the disciples? 
And Peter has affirmed to him, this is in Luke, it, it gives this account, that he's going to be with them. No doubt. I will stand with you, Jesus. Nobody's going to knock me away. You, you talked about this one who's going to fall away and betray. It's not going to be me. And Peter, Jesus looks at Peter with sorrow and says, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. To sift you like wheat. People of God, I want you to know, and, and I need to hear it, and you need to hear it, the evil one does not care any bit for any good to come in your life and mine. He hates you. He hates me. He hates any time that we seek Him and desire to grow in Him and receive greater grace in the areas where we're struggling with sin and falling short and see His mercy. He hates that for us to be freed in that way and to really experience grace and mercy. He hates for us to be motivated to serve and to love others and to do something out of our way just to be a blessing because of the kingdom of God in our lives. He hates that, despises it. He hates it when we actually slow down in our lives and sit with our children or sit with a coworker or sit with a family member and talk about the powerful things that God is doing in our hearts and lives and about his word. He hates that. He hates it when we decide not to upgrade or even trade in so that we can support the things of his kingdom. He hates the church, not just us individually. He hates us collectively. He hates it when we pray and seek the best for our church and when we invest our time and when we come together and worship corporately. Listen to what uh, Lewis says again in the screw tape letters, and forgive me for reading some of these long quotes today, but they're ministered to me and I, I hope will minister to you. Listen to, to Lewis's clever way, again, this older tempter speaking to the younger tempter about the church and about how the evil one wants to distract us. He says, one of our great allies at present is the church itself. Well, don't misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her. Again, these are demons talking to each other. Spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity. Terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it's quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees, this is the one he's working on tempting, his patient, all your patient sees is a half-finished Gothic church. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with a rather oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy, which neither of them understand, and one shabby little book that contains corrupt texts of a number of religious lyrics, most bad and in very small print. When he gets to his pew, he looks around him and sees just that selection of his neighbors that he has hitherto tried to avoid. You want to lean on those neighbors pretty heavily. Make his mind flip to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people that next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side, on the Lord's side he's talking about. No matter, your patient, thanks to our Father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune, have boots that squeak, double chins, or odd clothes, 
the patients will, patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore somehow be ridiculous. At his present stage, you see, this young believer has an idea of Christians in his mind which he supposes to be spiritual, but which in fact is largely pictorial. His mind is full of togas and sandals and armor and bare legs, and the mere fact that other people in church wear modern clothes is a real, though of course unconscious, difficulty to him. Never let him come to the surface. Never let him ask what he expected them to look like. Keep everything hazy in his mind now, and you'll have all eternity wherein to amuse yourself by producing in him the particular kind of clarity which hell affords. And then listen to these last couple sentences. Uh, Maybe particularly good for our new member folks to embrace, but all of us as well. He says, work hard then on the disappointment or anticlimax which is certainly coming to the patient during his first few weeks as a churchman. The enemy allows this disappointment, he's talking about God, the enemy, to occur on the threshold of every human endeavor. It occurs when the boy who has been enchanted in the nursery by stories of the Odyssey buckles down to actually learn Greek. It occurs when lovers have got married and begin the real task of learning to live together. In every department of life, it marks the transition from dreaming aspiration to laborious doing. The evil one has no interest in us really loving one another as we are, loving the work of Christ in each other. He wants us to be totally distracted from that, disconnected from one another and self-righteous in our relationships with each other. Let's take a minute as we think about resisting him to talk as well about his work and then we'll come to a conclusion. It not only helps us to see how he is at work tempting related to the church and that he really hates and despises these things about us, that there's no place in in him for us to cry uncle and for him to release us. He doesn't care about that. But it also will help us to see what his work looks like. Think about just a couple of biblical passages you may have in your mind. Mark chapter 5, you remember that demoniac guy? roaming around the hillside with chains attached to him, clawing at his own flesh, acting virtually like a wild animal. The evil one's work is sometimes like that, totally bizarre. It's sometimes, though, much more subtle. Jesus talking to the Pharisees, the religious lay leaders of the day, calls them sons of the devil because they're speaking against the work of Jesus. They're not recognizing his kingdom and his work. It's kind of like, though, we need something a little bit more to shock us. So we don't see those sort of, some of those bizarre things happening. We don't maybe see that many people running on the hills with chains attached to them. It's almost like we need one of those meth commercials. You've seen them on TV and you got the little kids around, you got to click, or even maybe they're a little scary to you, that, that shows it's a, it's a horribly sad thing. It shows this person, because of substance abuse, going from the state where they're a normal-looking and acting person descending further and further into this abyss to where they just don't even look like a, a healthy or normal human being anymore. 
We need some commercials like that to show the husband and wife to become so busy with personal hobbies or activities or work or social engagements that they're no longer connecting with one another. And they're declining. They're moving from looking normal in that relationship and God being glorified to being pulled further and further apart in conflict and discontentment. We need one of those commercials for the uh, self-righteousness that wells up in us and the person that uh, is on such a cloud of of pride and and self-sufficiency with God that, that comes and participates in worship but has no recognition of the vibrancy of grace that's needed for our salvation. We need a commercial like that for the woman who's so struggling with body image issues that if you asked her to really catalog each thought throughout her day, the main thought has been on how do I appear, how do I change my eating, how do I get these clothes to look a certain way. Or maybe it's even worse than all that. Maybe it's even more subtle than all of those things. As Lewis says again in the Screwtape Letters, I'll read one more uh, quotation from him. And he talks about our tendency to get caught up in just the menial things of life in such a way that the Lord and His kingdom and His greatness fades from our sight and we don't even pursue it. I think this is on your sheet as well. He says, One of my own patients, this older tempter to the younger tempter, said on his arrival down here, Now I see that I've spent most of my life, listen to this, doing neither what I ought nor what I liked. The Christians describe the enemy as one without whom nothing is strong and nothing is very strong. Strong enough to steal away a man's best years, not in sweet sins, but in a dreary flickering of the mind over it knows not what and it knows not why. And the gratifications of curiosity so feeble that the man is only half aware of them. In drumming his fingers and kicking his heels and whistling tunes that he does not like, or in the long, dim labyrinth of reveries that have not even lust or ambition to give them a relish, but which once chance association has started them, the creature is too weak and fuddled to shake off. And then listen to this. Because this stuff, if you're not hearing it, it describes us, describes who we are in our lives, and distracted by all the good things from the Lord. You will say that these are very small sins, And doubtless, like all young tempters, you'll be anxious to report some spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided their cumulative effect is to edge him away from the light and out into nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is a gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. You hear what he's saying? Lewis got no problem with cards and enjoying songs and various amusements or whatever. He's just trying to drive home to us 
the reality that those things, although they don't look bad or look negative in any way, if they are the the sum total of our lives, if they're the the pinnacle of who we are, and the Lord is not, if we're not uh, encountering Him in a deeper and more passionate way, then the enemy's had his way. The enemy's kept us from the good thing, the great thing, by the good things. Well, the third and last thing we need to talk about is how do we actually do this? How do we watch? How do we resist? Well, the passage says that we do it by faith. By faith. Verse 9 of that First Peter passage, chapter 5 again, says, firm in your faith. And then verse 12 says, stand firm in it. How does faith shape this whole interaction that we have? I think 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 13 sums it up well. You don't need to turn there. The Apostle Paul there in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 10, I'm sorry, 12 through 13, says this simple statement. Let anyone of you who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, all of us aren't going to remember this in those times of temptation. And many of us, myself included, probably have areas of our life where we're hazed over and blinded to the work of the evil one. But look how faith is involved in doing everything this passage tells us. You've got to have faith to believe that no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. He's just saying, hey, it's easy when you're feeling tempted in whatever particular area you struggle to say, man, I'm the only one going through this. Surely nobody else is facing this as difficult. He says, no, everybody in the world's facing these things. You're not alone in this. Don't think that. You've got to have faith to believe that. You've got to have faith to believe that God is faithful. The start of the next sentence. We have to have faith in order to believe that he will not let us be tempted beyond our ability. We're facing various areas of temptation. Don't we honestly think, well, that's just who I am. Just who I am. I can't not go this way. And then he says, but temptation, but with temptation, God will also provide a way of escape. Got to have faith to believe and to actually be looking, again, those goggles, <laughs> not just to see the evil one, but goggles of faith to be able to see the Lord providing that way out. Well, you say, uh, Pastor, sure would like you to relate all of this to Christmas a little bit since we're in Advent season. Uh, let me give it a shot as we conclude and use the words of Jonathan Edwards. I'm sorry, I'm quote, quote crazy today. Jonathan Edwards is talking about the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. And he says this, Oh, how we may conclude Satan triumphed when he had brought him down. How did he, as it were, laugh to think how sorrowfully they found themselves, disappointed in their expectations of coming to higher honor and being like God's. And the evil one would be excited for us. He's excited in the fact that we're fallen that we in and of ourselves are separated from God, that we've got no hope outside the work of Christ. But what does it do for us? This one coming into the world, taking on human form, coming in a manger, being able to take our place, what does that do? It takes the precise plan of the evil one to bring down humanity, and it redeems it. Jesus is the second Adam. 
we're told in the scriptures. And he redeems that, and so Edwards can say, their fall, the fall of you and me, the fall of humanity, has actually been their occasion to being advanced to greater dignity than before, brought much nearer to God, far more nearly united to him, and becoming his members, were part of his body. His spouse were the bride of Christ, and in many respects more honored than even the angels. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we praise and worship you for the work of our Redeemer who has broken both the penalty and the power of sin and gives us power to walk through this life in a way that we don't have to be manipulated by the evil one. As powerful and forceful as he is, I pray, Lord, that you would allow us to see how you are undergirding us and strengthening us that we would be watchful. We would see and then resist recognizing the evil one and his work. Not thinking of him as some mythical figure, but realizing that he's real. He's active. And Lord, that in so doing, we might grow in our faith as we see you meeting us and we see you addressing the work of the evil one in our lives individually, in our church, in our city and around the world. We see the gospel extending because Jesus, our merciful Savior, has come into the world and restoring all things. We pray this in His name. Amen.